before we jump into uh, the sermon today, a couple quick family, church family items. Scott mentioned uh, praying in his prayer about uh, elders and deacons. This week in, your, in the chair in front of you in the pocket, you'll find one of these cards again. We talked about this last week, but in case you didn't fill it out, um, now that we have adopted our new set of bylaws as a church, we're looking for your initial recommendations. When you think about the church membership, who are people that you see as already actively living a life congruent with the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, and doing the work of eldering. So on one side of the card, you'll see that, the word elder. Give some recommendations there. On the other side is deacon. It's the same for deacons. So 1 Timothy 3, who are people already doing the work of serving in the church? And then after the sermon, we'll be taking the offering, and please put that in there. We'll use these. These will go to the transition team. They'll look over them, pray over them, and invite people to the classes that will start November 1st, the training classes. So we'd love to hear from you. We got about 25, 30 of these last week, so hopefully we can get a couple of more this week. That would be great. And then secondly, as uh, we've been going through this series on prayer, we're trying to get additional resources into your hands to encourage you. Two of the books that have been especially helpful to me personally as I've prepared over the last year for this sermon series um, are both back in the bookstall. Um, Brian gave away the other one last week. This week, here are two copies of A Praying Life. This very faithfully says, um, God wants to hear from us throughout the day. And in particular, we need to see the struggles that we have, not as obstacles to our spiritual life, but as the means through which God would have us engage with him in prayer. So two individuals who'd be willing to read these. Anybody want them. Roger, come on up, brother. Somebody else? Thanks. Would you deliver that one? I will. Thank you. There's more of those back at the bookstall for uh, $10, I think, and we get nothing from that. Uh, no loyalties going to the book giver. That's just to recover the cost. So we're in Matthew 6 today. Would you turn with me there? And in just a couple of moments... Uh, we'll jump in and read that together. Um, in that book on prayer that we just gave out, Paul Miller makes this statement. It'll be on the screens behind me. Oddly enough, many people struggle to learn how to pray because they focus on praying, not on God. In prayer, focusing on the conversation is like trying to drive while looking at the windshield instead of through it. Do you resonate with that? Do you sometimes struggle in prayer because you're thinking so much about prayer and the struggle and the difficulty, the awkwardness of it, that the fact that we're praying to God can just completely get lost in the process? When we pray, how do we look through prayer in order to see God himself? In all of the messages in this series, that's what we're trying to talk about. But in particular, that's what we want to talk about today. How do we look through the windshield and see God? We're talking about God, his character, his desire to hear from us, his promise to transform us as Christians, his goodness in being our Heavenly Father. Last week, Brian started us off very well in the actual words of the prayer by talking about two things, two words, our Father. Took him a long time to talk about those two words, didn't it? Is he in here? 
No? That's helpful and appropriate. Take 40 minutes to talk about two words. Uh, Our Father, that's what he well spoke of. Brothers and sisters, the bedrock of prayer is that God, by his grace, is our Father. That's the confidence we have when we go to God as his children, that we have been adopted into his family, and that because of his grace, we can speak with him as our Father. We can go with him go before him with confidence that even though we can't see him, he's there. He hears, he listens, and he'll never turn away. Because Jesus gave himself for sinners on the cross, there's no wrath of God left for us. He's our benevolent father with arms wide open. And so we go to him with joy. Prayer is the privilege of calling on God as our father because Jesus died for us and now lives in us. I hope and pray that as we emphasize prayer together, that simply saying that word, Father, would resonate with us in new ways. But how exactly are we to talk with God as our Father? Today, we'll move into that question as we look at these different elements of the Lord's Prayer. Fundamentally, we tend to think of prayer as bringing our lists of needs to God. Don't we? When we think of prayer, what we typically think of is, I have these things I'd love for God to do, and so I'm going to bring my list to him. And that is part of what prayer is. But in our regular habit of talking with God, it's exceptionally dangerous to start prayer by going to our list of needs. Because that's not what prayer is fundamentally about. That is a small part of what prayer is. The most important thing that happens when we pray is not the articulation of our wants and our desires. God is more than a heavenly Santa Claus that gives us what we want if we're nice and holds back all that's good if we're naughty. Today we'll see that prayer is much more than that. So Matthew 6, 9 through 13, I wonder if you would just read it with me. Let's read it together from the screens, Matthew 9, 6 through Matthew 6, 9 to 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus brilliantly begins the model prayer by showing us that praise must be primary. So he starts with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does hallow mean? That's what we'll talk about today. I'd like to do that in three movements. First, let's consider what it means to hallow something. Second, let's talk about why hallowing is primary. And third, let's talk about how to cultivate it. So hallow what it means, why it's primary, and how to cultivate it. When it comes to prayer, Jesus says to start our praying by hallowing God. Well, that's really helpful, right? 
Not so much. The only time we ever use the word hallow is when we're playing limbo. How low can you go? Basically, to hallow something means to make holy, to see as sacred, or to revere. So the first thing, the head of the list, the most central and most important request in prayer is that God's name would be hallowed. To maybe say that even more aggressively, the all-pervasive, all-encompassing, all-controlling concern in prayer is that God would make his name supremely valuable in the hearts and minds of people. Friends, when we go to God in prayer, that's the most important thing that happens in prayer. The most important thing is not that I somehow surprise God with something I need. The most important thing that happens in prayer is not that God becomes aware of something that he had somehow been blind to. The most important thing that happens in prayer is that our hearts be positioned in such a way that we worship God again. Most central, most supreme is not our wants, but God's fame. But isn't God holy already? Perhaps you're like me, and as you come to this prayer, that's the first objection that comes to your mind. God, why would I be told to pray that you would be regarded as holy when you're already holy? Isn't God's, is God's holiness somehow contingent on our prayers that he would be holy? So if all of us slept in tomorrow and we skipped our morning prayers and we hit snooze multiple times and we didn't say, God, today may you be hallowed, would there be this stretch of time in which God was no longer pure, when he was not holy? That's ludicrous. Then what is God saying? Does God fall out of sinless perfection if his sinful people forget to ask that he would be made holy? Of course not. Then, then what's being said here? The phrase, hallowed be your name, is a plea that God would cause his attributes to be praised through our lives. It's God being set apart regarding himself in our, in our own thoughts about him as infinitely wonderful, valuable, and worthy of adoration. To hallow God means to praise and magnify all that he is. Prayer has a way of causing us to climb down off our thrones and recognize that God is forever on his throne. That's what it means to hallow. It's a recognition of who God is and how wonderful he is. Perhaps you noticed in the songs we sung this morning that all of them helped us recognize the character of God and what he's given us in the gospel. So thankful for the work that Brian Murphy does each week in choosing the songs that we sing and in the band that leads us because that helps frame our hearts and minds to receive from God's word. God's always holy, but we frequently forget the fact that he's holy. And so this prayer doesn't make him holy. It rather helps us remember that he is holy. Perhaps this week you have regarded God as commonplace. Perhaps you've taken advantage of him. 
In our use of God's name and in our manner of daily life, we Christians can live as though God is nothing more than a boring, boring duty and a distant dad. To live in awe of God is our first and greatest need. If you hear nothing today, and maybe nothing in this entire series except that, that's the thing that I am praying would stick for us as a church, is that to live in awe of God is our first and greatest need. Friends, we will hallow something or someone today. It is impossible that we as human beings, as men and women, not regard someone or, or something as the object of our affections. And that's simply what worship is. It's to ascribe to something outside of us worth, value, honor, and significance. And God is the only being in the universe that can stand up under the weight of worship. He's the only rightful object of our deepest desires. Only God is worthy of that adoration. And so Jesus tells us as we start in prayer to say, God, you're holy. Help me treasure you above everything and everyone else today. May I recognize all day long that we are holy, that you are holy. Freudian slip there. May we be captivated, God, by you. And notice that this is not only our individual greatest need, but it is the greatest need of all people everywhere for all time. And so there is this movement from the very beginning of the prayer that God would help us to see that the greatest need of everyone is to get a sense of God as the supreme object of our affections, as the one in whom all delight comes, that we would yearn for other people to hallow God as well. You see, this prayer is not simply that God would help me to see him as praiseworthy, but that all people everywhere would come to see God as praiseworthy. Brothers and sisters, if you never find yourself asking that your friends and family and even the world at large would be saved and come to know the joy that you know in the gospel, then something's deeply wrong in our praying. Perhaps that's reflective of of selfishness and pride. Because God would love to work through you and your praying in order to help other people come to know him. Perhaps the most important thing we do for the cause of Christ around the world is pray. And so like Scott did in his prayer this morning, I hope this week you could get in the habit of praying for others by praying for the missions team, the six people who are in Scotland this week. Now, if you're a non-Christian today hearing all of this, we would say to you, first of all, welcome. We're thrilled that you're here. We hope that you are enjoying yourself. And second, we would say that we Christians believe in a God more wonderful than perhaps you've ever imagined. Maybe you've been sold short on who he is and what he's like. So here's a few things the Bible tells us about God. The Bible tells us that God's eternal, that he's always been and he always will be, that he is the only non-created being. And that puts him in a class all by himself. This God is unchanging. He's present everywhere. He's sovereign. He's in complete control. This God is never surprised. He's never defeated. 
He's always powerful. He knows all things actual and all things possible. This God is just and loving and benevolent and gracious. He seeks the highest good at great cost to himself. He's merciful. He's independent of creation and yet intricately involved in it. He's righteous, perfect. There is no sin, no error, no mistake, no hypocrisy. He's completely set apart from evil and devoted to what's good. He's consistent. He's truthful. He's genuine. He's trustworthy. This God's personal. So he is everywhere, and yet he wants to be present with you personally. This God is long-suffering. He's an avenger of every evil. He's self-existent. He's a provider. He's a God of peace. He's a shepherd, a healer, a mighty one, a Lord, a master, a king, a savior, an almighty Messiah, an everlasting mighty God. That's God. And this God is not supremely revealed as a distant being who created the world and then spun it in such a way that it just goes on as its own. But rather, this God is supremely revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know what this God is like, non-Christian, pick up a Bible, take the one in the chair in front of you if you don't have one, turn to one of the Gospels, that's the category of four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are simply the biographies of Jesus' life. Read them and say, what is God like? And allow those words to teach you. If this kind of God exists, and if he's provided a way for you to know him and to pray to him, then wouldn't you want to explore a relationship with that God? Fundamentally, that's what we Christians believe is true about him. At Church on Mill, we often talk about being a gospel-centered people. This means that we're a church family that believes it's possible to enjoy a relationship with God despite our sin through the work of Christ on the cross. We would love to tell you more about him. So stick around after the gathering this morning if you don't know that truth. Visit with somebody around you or find a leader. We'd love to talk with you. So that's what hallowing is. It's simply recognizing, ascribing worth and praise and honor to God. Second, let's talk about why it's primary. Why does Jesus start with every time you enter an extended time of in-depth prayer, begin by praising God? Why does he start there? Why is hallowing primary? Well, at the risk of great mocking and your chiding, this is the only time I'll ever do this, but I want to reference a country song. Because it illustrates a truth that I'm trying to get at. Now understand, country music is not music. It's air pollution. But this one particular song in the entire genre is helpful. All right, Garth Brooks said this. Sometimes I thank God for my pickup truck and my house that doesn't have wheels. Sometimes I thank God for beer cans and bathtubs. Sometimes I thank God for burgers. 
That's not what it says. It says, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. Do you know it? Come on. When you're talking to the man upstairs, that just because there's one person back there <laughs> quoting it. Who is that? Julie, of course. <laughs> just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Those of you who've been walking with God for a while, please don't sing that, but <laughs> have you had that experience? Is there something that as you look back on your story, you would say, I was really convinced that I needed this, I wanted this, that it's what God designed for me, that it was going to position me in a way to do great things, and yet it didn't happen. And perhaps there was a season of time in which you were angry about that, or had doubts about that, or even struggled to approach God at all because of that. But now as you think about it, you thank God for that unanswered prayer. Friends, that is why praise is primary. It is a dangerous thing for me to go before God first with my needs because I don't really know what my needs are. I know what my wants are. And what starting with hallowing, what starting with praise does is it takes my eyes off this little bubble of Chuck and puts them up into this tremendous God who then helps me see reality for what it really is. So that then when I get to the praying of needs, I'm praying for things in light of reality. I'm praying for them in light of who God is, what he's done, which completely changes the list. So God uses praise to help us know what we should pray for. That's why we start there. Friends, what we want and what we need are often not quite the same. Many times what we feel isn't what's real. And so praise or adoration or hallowing God doesn't take us off into some otherworldly place. Instead, it grounds us in truth. It grounds us in reality. It helps us see the world for what it really is. There's a man named Augustine who, over 1,500 years ago, put it like this. He, therefore, is truly happy who has all that he wishes to have and wishes to have nothing which he ought not to wish. Praising God has that effect upon us. It changes our wishing so that I'm not begging God to do things that in the end are going to be harmful to me. I'm instead focusing first on who he is. The first step in prayer is to adore God, and it's only after our hearts have been retuned to God's glory are we prepared to ask rightly. That's why adoration is the alpha prayer. Praising God for who he is and what he's done is the motivation that then drives all the other kind of praying we're to do. So, Here's one example. This won't, 
This quote won't be on the screens because I just added it last night. Jill and I, this last week, started reading a book of prayers written by a Scottish pastor about 100 years ago. And one of them, one section of it says this, Lord of my life, whose commands I'm eager to keep, whose fellowship I'm eager to enjoy, whose service I'm eager to be loyal, I kneel before you as you send me out to serve you. Isn't that good? That submissive, delighting in God posture comes through praise. All day long, every day, you and I are praising something. Most of the time, we're, we're praising things right in our immediate bubble. And that's why we're so miserable. If we would turn our eyes off of ourselves onto the great God who reveals himself in nature, who reveals himself in the common good, who reveals himself in the scriptures, we would have so much more joy. We'd be much quicker to pray what that Scottish pastor prayed. God, use me today however you want. Praising God has that effect upon us. The only way we'll pray that kind of prayer, God, use me today, is if our prayers are rooted first in praise. Now maybe if you are honest, that kind of praying is completely foreign to you. Maybe you simply don't ever pray that way. Maybe if you pray, you just ask for stuff. And life doesn't seem like there's very many things worthy of praising God for. Maybe praising God in prayer first and foremost seems weird and unnecessary. I think the first thing I would want to say to you is, you're not the only person in the room that have had those thoughts. You're likely not the only person in the room that's having those thoughts right now. There is no one in the room that every moment of every day, our natural bent is to say, God, you're really great. So you're not alone. But friends, the reason ultimately we think it's weird is because we lose sight of how wonderful God is. And we mistake the truths, the promises of the gospel for easy lives. That isn't what God promises. We've settled for the crumbs that fall from the table when God's offering us the bountiful feast of a relationship with him. And praising him is, is what brings us back up to the table so we can feast again. And I understand this kind of praying is neither natural nor quick. It takes long-term commitment. Because as we praise God, God's transforming our hearts. So the more you do this, the more natural it becomes. The less you do it, the more difficult it becomes. Now let's talk about hallowing, how to cultivate it. How is it that we move from being people who perhaps rarely praise God, rarely hallow, to it being the normative pattern of our lives? I'm not a big list person, but I'd like to give you a list. Here are four suggestions of ways to go about this. 
We desperately want this series for God to use it to change the landscape of our church family, to help us to become a a genuinely praying people. So here are, are four suggestions of how to put this into practice. First, begin your day by praising God for who he is. Make it a habit that the very first thing you do in the morning is develop a habit, a discipline of turning your mind onto the character of God. Start the day before you ever even get out of bed thanking God for who he is, recognizing his character, praising him for some attribute that comes to mind. And then as you go through your morning, whatever turns your mind to praise, use it. Maybe it's good music. Maybe it's a big breakfast. Maybe it's reading a devotional. Most importantly, it's reading the Bible, watching for God's character. One of the difficulties in becoming a people of praise is that it's easy to think, I've already said that. I've already said that. I've already said that. This is boring. I hope that you don't think that's sacrilegious. But if you spend years every morning waking up thanking God for who he is, that can become rote. It can become stale. So how is it that it stays fresh? The best way I know of is to make it your habit to read the scriptures and pray about what you're reading. There is an infinite treasure of knowledge of who God is and what he's done here. You will never exhaust the reasons to praise God in the scriptures. And so if this is completely foreign to you, start in the Psalms. It's perhaps the easiest place in the scriptures to do this. Pick one, say, Monday morning I'm reading, what's tomorrow? The 12th. I'm going to read Psalm 12, and God, I want to praise you, so I don't really feel like praising you. I hate mornings, but God, over a cup of coffee and over Psalm 12, I'm going to spend 10 minutes praising you. And friends, there is nothing wrong with that being a discipline in your life that you're you're doing because you want to become a person that praises God. You don't have to feel it in order to do it. If you do it, eventually you will feel it. So really practically speaking, do whatever it takes to remind yourself in the morning of God's glory. Second, now let's think about as we go throughout the day. Intentionally turn, and this will sound very strange, but let me explain it. Turn every pleasure into a channel of adoration. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of C.S. Lewis. Let me explain what he means. There is a way that in a few minutes, you will go and eat lunch and enjoy the food and nothing more. That's it. It's just a good meal. But there's another way to go and eat lunch and enjoy it. And as you're savoring those flavors, and as you're enjoying the company of family or friends, to let those good things remember, remind you of how great God is. 
everything good in life can become an occasion to praise God. Because praise completes the pleasure. When Jill comes down the stairs looking particularly beautiful, as you are today, did you hear Abby? Abby said, (laughs) (laughs) When Jill comes down the stairs and standing there is this gloriously beautiful woman, the most natural thing a husband, I can do is what? Say, wow, you look beautiful today. You don't have to conjure that up. It just happens. Why? Because praise completes the enjoyment. It's not a discipline you have to cultivate. It's the natural reflection of something desirable. And Friends, what if you began to see everything good in your life as that, as an occasion upon which to say, wow, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for my job. Thank you, God, for my clothes. Thank you, God, for this car I can get in, for this bike I can ride. Thank you, God, for this church family that I can gather with. Thank you, God, for this meal. That's what Lewis is talking about. He put it like this. Gratitude exclaims, how good of God to give me this. But adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far-off and momentary conversations? It means brilliance. I looked it up. Of mo- whose momentary brilliance are like this. One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying when we, when we see something good and wonderful, then it's like just following the beam back up to the sun and saying, thank you, praise you, you're a great God. Friends, everything good in our lives, every pleasure rightly enjoyed, Friendship, a good book, the sunset. Did you see the sunset last night? It's incredible. Music, work, art, completing a project. Everything good is a tiny little glimpse of the glory of God. We are pitiful, miserable, uptight people because we've lost sight of that. Because every moment of every day, there are good things, even in the midst of hardship, to acknowledge and thank God for. Again, Lewis is helpful. He goes on to say, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Friends, God longs for you to enjoy him. And enjoying him comes through obeying and then praising him. He is the fountain of joy. And the gospel is what awakens us to that reality. It opens our eyes to the goodness of God and his kindness in saving us. It's what allows us to enjoy the everyday stuff of life. We praise what we enjoy because the delight is incomplete until it's expressed in praise. It's, I don't have to tell myself she's beautiful. It just comes out because she is. Friends, God is infinitely beautiful.
So this afternoon, eat lunch and thank God for it. Take a nap and thank God for it. Watch a football game and thank God for it. Finish a school project. Enjoy a cup of coffee with a brother or sister in Christ. Go for a run. Stand outside and enjoy that you're not getting baked alive. <laughs> Every good thing is an occasion to chase the sunbeam back up to the sun and thank God. Third, another way to develop the habit of hallowing God is to give careful attention to the disordered loves of the heart. When we don't feel like praising God, it's because, many times, we've looked at something less praiseworthy and found it lacking. We've taken one of those good things from God and made it the ultimate object of our affections, made it the thing we worship. That's called idolatry. And no one and no thing, no accomplishment will ever satisfy that place inside of us that's made for God. And so when I worship something else, then it inevitably collapses. And then in a weird way, I no longer want to worship God. It's convoluted and backwards, but yet at least I am an expert at it. So when there is that experience of dissatisfaction, of disappointment, then don't stuff that feeling. Instead, talk with a brother or sister in Christ and say, help me understand what's going on inside of me. Pray for a recognition of where there is remaining and dwelling idolatry in our hearts. And then confess it to God. That will have an effect of making God more lovely in our minds. 1 Peter 3 tells us to honor Christ the Lord as holy. And that's what this hallowing God is, is all about. Fourth, and I'll end with this one. How do we hallow God? How do we make this a habit if it's not? Well, we can patiently pray with other people. Prayer, particularly adoration, takes something we know about God and recognizes it as reality. It takes abstract things like God's perfection or his wisdom or the fact that he's always been. Prayer takes those truths that feel abstract and squeezes them into the hearts and fleshes them out in our minds so that we actually experience those truths. And sometimes that's difficult to do alone. Sometimes we get in ruts and it can be exceedingly helpful to pray with other people. Often we need the example, the help, and the reminder of other Christians to recall who God is and what he's done. As you, hopefully many of us, start in Psalm, what was it? Psalm 12, and we work our way through day after day, praying through the Psalms, simply thanking God for his attributes that we see, praying about whatever comes to mind as we go through them. One of the themes you'll find in the Psalms over and over and over again is this tension between 
God, you have done all of these things. This is who you are. And yet, it doesn't feel like it because we've forgotten you. God, help us to remember you. And there's this corporate effect that praying together has on us of helping us remember the character of God. In the last two or three years, without a doubt, the habit that has most often refreshed my heart has been praying with you. Has been gathering oftentimes with simply two or three other men and starting a day by, by praying together. And at first that feels natu- unnatural and clunky and awkward. After all, we're talking to someone we can't see. Most of the world would take it, tell us we need medication. But God is there. And praying with other people who believe the same things does something in us, particularly related to praising God. There's nothing quite like adoring, hallowing God with brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, God is a God worthy of all praise. Your heart is a heart in need of worshiping God. So the alpha prayer is adoration. Let's try it together. God, you are infinitely wonderful. You are a God with the ability to simply speak words and bring things into being. And the things that were taught in science, like the law of gravity, is a law, it's something we can count on, because your power not only created things, it continued to sustain them. And God, you took little things like taking in calories to allow our bodies continue to function and made them wonderful. God, you gave us a glorious sunset last night that isn't simply a result of the particles of dust in the air and the setting of the sun. It is that, but it's you speaking through that. And supremely, God, we praise you because you came in Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and in tremendous supernatural power, conquered death. God, we want to become a people who are marked not by what we have, not by what we've accomplished, not by what we look like, not by who we're with. But by being people whose lips are full of praise to our King. I pray you take these words and because your word is life, it's power, it's truth, you would do a supernatural work in the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray for those here who don't know you yet that they'd have the courage to stick around and to ask somebody near them, hey, tell me a little more about this. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name.